<laughs> yeah. What, this one was just like <laughs> unexpected the entire time. Like whatever you think, it's not. Okay, just stop. I'm Kat. And we're the ghouls next, next door. Talk about spooky stuff. It's really funny to start the episode that way because it's going to get dark later. So <laughs> that's like our show. That's it's like the opposite work. of the vibe. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you got to get people excited to prepare them for the heavy. That's why yes. we use entertainment to educate on exactly. our show. See? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. We <laughs> are the media literacy show from a horror lens where we explore the real life historical and cinematic driven ways yep. uh, <laughs> that uh, horror influences uh, real life or real life influences cinematic horror. That's it. That's the answer. Yeah. And um, today we're talking about a horror film that is super popular came mm-hmm. out this year and people are crazy about it and reasonably so yeah this is like the first time in a minute well not not necessarily true but like we're usually a little bit behind you know the hype mm-hmm. and I feel like this year has been like the first year ever that we've been kind of on it yeah like with the hype like we really have been covering stuff in line and in time yeah with like what's happening and maybe we're just more in tune with the universe or the world but like but also stuff's coming out that we can't, like, make sense for us to talk about, too. Mm-hmm. Men, we watched it in theaters. We did X. Really yeah. As soon as it came out. Also, just, like, what a year it's been for horror. It's been a really good year for horror. Um, yeah. Killing it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and today we're going to be talking about Barbarian, which, for anyone who hasn't seen it, don't watch this episode. <laughs> just yeah. stop just don't do it go watch the fi- go watch the film then come back if you like we're never like if you don't watch horror you're never gonna watch it then sure yeah but or just skip to cat section because that's just like real horrors and it's a little different yeah, <laughs> but definitely skip my session educational uh just it reminds me of that uh amber often sketch which is like wherever we now or whatever uh, and it's always like when you thought it couldn't get worse it always does and that yeah. is very much yeah the theme of my section in that like wow america sucks uh mm-hmm. continuously uh and you can see it in the film and it's like wow look at media like subtly say stuff and also directly say stuff and like it's doing a bunch. It's a really interesting movie. I really didn't expect you were like hyping it up so hard, and I was like, "Oh God!" <laughs> what if you um, it? And it, yeah, no, it was actually really interesting. Like yeah. probably one of the most interesting films I've seen in a minute in terms of like its approach. Mm-hmm. I really didn't expect any of the. Same. I, I usually can. We've watched enough. We've watched horror movies for like the past six years. Once a week, mm-hmm. I can usually predict an ending. I had no idea it was going the way that it was going the entire time. Uh, yeah. So what a ride. Definitely <laughs> go watch it. Unless you're like very scared of gore. Uh, yeah. Because there's some like, gory things in there. 
but yeah and i think it it is i think it's worth it like you could you could close your eyes enough through the core to make it through <laughs> yeah, just... the good parts of the movie and it's pretty funny that like it doesn't leave you in the in it so much like it doesn't feel gratuitous yeah. like it's silly it's over the top it's super sure. fair yeah you like you look at it and then you look away yeah uh, i definitely yeah. did <laughs> um there's so i was dying to watch it because i heard good things about it but it was you know in the midst of we couldn't like have time to go anywhere so i was waiting mm-hmm. for it to come and be available on a streaming platform and then when it finally was i was like okay i'm gonna go i'm gonna watch it and so <laughs> me and my partner every time we were all right we're like tonight we're gonna watch it something would happen yeah and then i was like okay then the next day i was like all right tonight we're gonna watch and i'm like my whole day I would be excited and ready and waiting yeah. to watch this film. Like, and that hasn't happened in a long time, but I was genuinely like, I cannot wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to be so great. And then I wouldn't be able to watch it because something would happen. And so then there was this one night where I was like, I don't feel good. I want to watch this movie to feel better. I had a bad day. And <laughs> my partner was supposed to watch it with me. And then he had this like emergency he had to do on the computer. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm gonna watch it without you <laughs> I'm sorry but I have to watch this I need this for my mental health yeah and he's like okay and when I was watching it so I was watching it alone in the dark with my cats which is the press the best way that you're supposed to watch horror movies mm-hmm. and I did ask him I was like did you hear me at all because <laughs> like there are some jump scares there are things yeah. where you're like getting spooked in there it was like it is genuine horror yeah and he was like well yeah he's like but there was one in particular where there was like a shriek and then a oh no what is that <laughs> there's just a lot of me like oh that's not good yeah <laughs> there's a lot of me reacting to like wait what's happening now and yeah when he said the shriek and the oh no I was like oh I know exactly what scene that what is are you talking about yeah <laughs> And so um, then it became a thing for me that was really exciting to get you and him to watch it and me to watch you watch mm-hmm. it. Um, Did it live up to the hype of you yeah. watching us watch it? <laughs> yeah, just like, because <laughs> it's like the the parts that hit, hit. And that's just mm-hmm. like, and for different reasons, like the horror parts hit, the comedy parts parts hit. It's really good for that. Mm-hmm. And so I really enjoyed that. And then there were like, because we, this is our haunted series. And so there's a lot of things we could talk about <laughs> with Barbarian because there's a lot of topics that come through. But something that like, when I was watching it, we didn't originally plan this for our Haunted Towns episode. It's actually mm-hmm. like what we're going to talk about next week is our Haunted Towns episode. Mm-hmm. So this one just got added in because I uh, was watching it and I was like, okay, this is pretty on the nose because it takes place in Detroit. Yeah. And you know, she's like, you see in the trailer, like she's at this Airbnb, right? But the whole, like the place that she's in is like broken down. And there's even like commentary in the film where people are like, oh, you're over there in an Airbnb. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like that's not the good part of town. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've only visited Detroit once. It was for like this artist convention, <laughs> which like mm-hmm. puts me right in the same boat as the characters in this. Um, And when I went, we got an Airbnb and it was incredibly the same like it literally mm. was an airbnb in one like, it wasn't brightmore but it was definitely one of those neighborhoods and it was just like that where you have one house and then the rest of the neighborhood was abandoned and broken down and when we got 
picked up for to go to the convention by our Lyft or Uber or whatever, the driver was like, what are you doing out here? Like, you guys should not be out here. Like, this is not safe. Like, I can't believe you're out. Like, genuinely. And this was years ago. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So um, it was like pre-COVID. Like, we drove up there. And I remember we were like brushing it off because we we're like, we're from Philly. It's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. We're going to be in this town. But it wasn't really that. It was just like, it didn't make any sense to this person, this local, like why you would be here. And even when we were like in the city center, I remember just experiencing like the impact of like how desolate it is. Like it was mm-hmm. empty everywhere. It's and it and it felt apocalyptic because it's this huge place. Like there's it, there's so much going on and there's so much culture and art and just like community that you can see, but then there was nobody there to mm-hmm. experience it, but like us oh, wow. <laughs> for this like, convention. And like the convention was very intentional about like we are in Detroit for a reason. And, it, you know, highlighting their community. And so we made it a point to really visit, like, specific places for that. But everywhere I went, I was like, where are the people? Yeah. Like, it felt like everyone just packed up left one day and has never come back. Yeah. I mean. And kind of did. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, um, not entirely, but, like, kind of, yeah. 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 And just, like, yeah. And I'll talk a bit about, like, which communities were mostly affected and why and Kat will dive into that even further um but yeah so we have a <laughs> we have a long one for you because again there's a lot to be said about this film and about just our American cities and their uh, abandonment and mistreatment honestly mm-hmm. so yeah. um why don't I hop in then Cool. So like I said, we're watching, we're talking about Barbarian, which is um, from 2022. I almost said 2023. I'm like, I know it's the end of the year, Gabe, but come come down. Um, (laughs) We're still here. We're still here. We got a few months. Uh, Barbarian from 2022. And it is about a woman staying at an Airbnb discovers that the house she has rented is not what it seems. And it's directed by Zach Krieger. Um, Yeah. So that's what you get when you're <laughs> when you're talking like when you watch the trailer. It's like Airbnbs. Oh no! Which mm-hmm. I w- was reluctant to watch it because of that because I've seen that film. Yeah, and it was fine. <laughs> it was not yeah. my favorite film. <laughs> so I was like, oh, is it gonna be that again? Nope. nope. <laughs> yeah, what, this one was just like <laughs> unexpected the entire time. Like whatever you think, it's not okay. Just stop. Um, so Barbarian is a new and original horror movie that has shooketh the horror community. Um, and like I said, it's created by Zach Krieger, who is a former member of the whitest kids, you know, and I was slightly hesitant to watch it because of that. (laughs) Like I've watched whitest kids, you know, not all of it holds up. There's some parts that are funny. Um, but I was like, Oh no. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Um, However, I do think that comedy creators at the helm of horror makes for some great scares and fun in a fun time, like Mm -hmm. Jordan Peele, right? Um, Because it really does well of setting that up and letting you release um, and then sprinkling a little comedy so you can relax. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) The biggest thing about this film is that you shouldn't know anything about it before you hop in. So like I said, uh, I highly, very seriously ask that you watch the film before listening to me unpack it. It is available on HBO Max and Hulu if you have the HBO subscription thing. Mm. So go there and watch it. Ask for someone's login. (laughs) 
like please go watch it because there is so much i can say about this film and a few different themes that i could unpack but this is our episode about haunted towns so i'm going to try and steer towards the haunted detroit rather than the feminist undertones i'm going to try okay <laughs> if you have to talk about both i think it's okay you know i'm gonna it's talk about hard. the town aspect a little bit so it, it evens out it evens out yeah, it's gonna it's it's gonna be what it's gonna be. So yeah. <laughs> please, like I said, please please watch it because there's there is spoilers. It's not like a lot. I try to keep it a little loose, but it's it makes yeah, I have to because mm-hmm. of what happens. Um, and one of the biggest like parts elements of it is that you come in with your own like feelings about yeah. the characters <laughs> and the situations. Like you mm-hmm. gotta come in fresh. So. The film opens on Tess, a young woman in her car on a rainy street. She scrolls through her text of an email containing the lockbox code for her Airbnb. The situation seems normal as she mumbles the code to herself, though it is wrong, uh, before trying to unlock the box for the key. When she does get the box open, the key is missing. Um, Luckily and strangely, someone is in the house and opens the door for her scary <laughs> red flags and so the trailer's teasing begins um <laughs> with essentially that so who is this guy and what is he doing in her airbnb is this an airbnb mm-hmm. horror movie it is and it isn't it's better <laughs> than any airbnb horror movie you've seen because it actually is talking about the issues of airbnbs anyway yeah bill Skarsgård plays keith the current guest of this double booked airbnb and tess is a new final girl fave for me uh her gut and initial reaction to presume danger really resonated with me like how she reacted to a lot of things i was like yeah uh-huh. <laughs> i feel that there's right a lot response. of her, like, yep <sighs> Um, immediately Tess is on the fence about this handsome stranger and the audience is also wary of him thanks to the seller casting decisions because we cannot trust Pennywise yeah uh, <laughs> Bill Skarsgård has played villains even in a film called Villains <laughs> okay like <laughs> it's on like you come in like Thinking, yeah. how cute you are <laughs> so she takes many precautions and isn't shy to let him know she is uncertain of him and cannot be played she doesn't drink his tea she calls hotels for rooms she checks his reservation confirmation takes a photo of his id and sleeps in the room with a lock on the door and throughout the film Tess behaves like any final girl should, aware of the dangers in our world and cautious of her place in it. Her only flaw we'll come to know is that she is too kind. Yep. <laughs> she cared too much. Yep. Um, and could be just because she's not from here. <laughs> like she's she's not from Detroit. She hasn't lived in this like environment. That can contribute to it. Um, but she is too kind. Uh, Keith tries in all he does to put Tess at ease. And in those attempts, he fumbles nervously. And he is aware of her discomfort and caution. But every time he tries to dispel those worries, he only reinforces them. <laughs> like yeah. His constant insistence of his goodness and trustworthiness makes us all the more wary. Um, if you have to say it, you know, <laughs> like yeah. then like you're... I think Buzz protests too much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she didn't drink the tr- the tea, like I said, so he remarks on that and tells her that he can watch her make another cup. And he, like, insists 
that you drink this tea and you're like what's in the tea <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? uh, <laughs> and then uh he doesn't open the wine until she's around hoping that she'll have a drink with him and you're like why you want her to get drunk <laughs> yeah <laughs> and all the while his awkward attempts at genuine care come off as sinister because we cannot trust pennywise and it's not until he reveals who he really is which is a member of a jazz collective that has been buying up blocks of homes in detroit to make affordable and accessible living spaces for detroit artists and she softens up to him mm -hmm. uh though as an audience member i felt like this was too convenient given that she was in detroit interviewing for a position as a research assistant for a documentary about this very collective coincidence or yeah. carefully laid out plan for human trafficking yeah it was very like fresh like yes and you know what i'm talking about where he's like <laughs> oh, the, you said that? I also love that thing. Or like, yeah. I am also very conveniently aligned to whatever the thing you're doing is uh, yeah. to earn trust. Like part of, like a little, it's a little more that, like advanced than that because it was so specific and he offered it up first. Uh -huh. Like those details. Um, but like, because he is like, oh, you should interview me. But he knew too much about it. That's why I was like, okay, that seems weird. Like, he reversed yeah. this. Oh, he seemed like it's planned. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like to me. Like, oh, they knew she was going to be here. And so it's oh, like a whole so scary. Scene, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's so scary. So that's where I was. And I was like, he's just trying to, like, get her to drink this tea. What's wrong with him? <laughs> so um, in an article on Collider titled barbarian ending explain the horrors and resilience of womanhood writer Raquel Hallman explains how this interaction in Tess's overall caution sets the tone for the entire film saying once Tess and Keith are able to interact on a human basis she relaxes enough to explain to him how many precautions she had to take before calming down while he never particularly felt as though his safety was ever in jeopardy mm -hmm. she even remarks how if roles were reversed Keith would have just settled right in without a second thought the first act does a brilliant job at establishing the female gaze that governs most of the film. Women are often socialized to constantly watch over their shoulder and to regard unfamiliar men with caution. It's the marked differences in socialization and overconfidence in their own safety that brings each of the men to their demise. I was like, yep. Because yeah. exactly. <laughs> they don't have any red flags. Like, they're not like, every single time <laughs> they're met with something that's scary, they're like, the whatever, what's that? Yeah, let me look at it. I need to see it with my own eyes. <sighs> yeah, man like angry. Don't. Like, that's it. Like, <laughs> every time. Um, once this human connection is made, Tess loosens up and the film takes a sharp turn into romantic comedy. <laughs> a mm -hmm. montage of the cutest scenes occurs. Where, were this not a horror movie, wouldn't this be a really sweet, meet cute? Yeah. A story to tell their children. You know, we both we booked the same airbnb it was fate like mm -hmm. <laughs> practically writes itself so they have a wonderful night and tess has herself thinking she may have stumbled into a real life rom-com until she goes to sleep um she hears noises her door is now unlocked and she can hear and see keith twitching and mumbling in his sleep is he okay yeah. uh it's okay <laughs> doesn't it still doesn't run into horror territory yet like it still yeah. is very much just like okay we just been messing with you this whole time yeah <laughs> in the morning tess ventures back out to her car after reading a cute note from keith wishing her luck on the interview and now that we see the neighborhood in the light it's even more unsettling and terrifying than it was in the rainy dark night before it feels sinister forgotten and foreboding Keith has cautioned her the night before, saying he wouldn't even go around the neighborhood at this time of night, which is saying a lot, because he had no 
<laughs> worries. <laughs> yeah. Um, and at the time, it fueled our mistrust of him. Like, why is he trying getting? Tr- why is he trying so hard to get her to stay? Was yeah. it what it felt like, like he kept, oh, there's convention in town. Like it really felt <laughs> in a yeah. horror movie situation. It felt bad. Yeah, we already knew it was a horror movie, so our guards were already up anyway. But would have been even yeah. more, like just because we know life. Yes, and I think if it was a rom com, we would have been like, oh, it's so cute. Yeah, the world it's a different frame. <laughs> exactly, um, but in the daytime, we can see why he was worried. And this is not the suburbs. This is a desolate, apocalyptic wasteland. Um, Tess eventually goes to her interview, and it seems to go well until the filmmaker asks her why, where she's staying. And when she learns that Tess is in Brightmore, she becomes visibly worried. No one should be staying there. This is one of the hints that something truly sinister is occurring. This abandoned and broken neighborhood seems to have sad secrets. The horror movie kicks in, finally, when Tess ventures to the basement to find some TP, and she gets locked in and soon discovers a hidden hallway to which she promptly nopes before eventually final girling her way uh, to see in the dark. Which I was like, that's what made her my favorite. (laughs) She's very resourceful. Like, she sets stuff up, and she was like, I'm not just going in here, you know? Yeah. Um, It was really giving Erin from your next, like, on a regular person. (laughs) scope you know um so now that she set up a way to see in the light she's rigged this mirror to reflect the light into this this spooky hallway she stumbles into the secret space to find a truly horrifying room it's dirty contains only a single stained bed a video camera and a questionable bucket when she is freed from the basement by keith she is shook panicking she begs keith to leave and he brushes off her fear um she must be hysterical. <laughs> what I'm not I'm not gonna get upset because of a bucket. <laughs> he oh reasons God. that a strange room with a bucket and camera is not enough to send him running. I don't know why not, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't that deep. I don't need to stay any place <laughs> for any reason. Like what? Um when he goes to investigate, he begs her to stay in case he gets locked in, and Tess's folly begins. This is when yeah. we truly see that she's not full final girl yeah <laughs> she's a little too much um too nice as she when said. he's <laughs> yeah exactly poor thing um he's gone for far too long so she goes to find him leading to a new secret tunnel leading further down because why not <laughs> you're like yeah. don't why are you going down here even she's like why am i going down here <laughs> yeah like what are we doing um and in this horrifying tunnel, she is very clearly terrified. This is another thing I really appreciate about Tess was like horror horror final girls get scared, sure, and they do a lot of screaming and running, but she was like genuinely scared. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is valid. This is exactly how you react if you're wandering down to this tunnel. And every time she sees something scary, she's like shaking and she's calling for Keith and she's like, She's just looking back like I want to go back that is the yeah. right decision here I should not be down here I am consciously choosing to do the wrong thing and she's aware of that yeah the entire time but like fights that to yeah. save him uh-huh and you think it might be oh because they have chemistry but it's not the case she just really cares about people yeah um so she sees all these red flags there's a lot down there and after a truly harrowing encounter that will leave you pondering what this movie is actually about the film snaps over to an entirely new character (laughs) (laughs) it's just like oh okay what (laughs) that's the ah 
oh no and then what (laughs) (laughs) what are we doing um so justin long is in this film you might not know that because it's not in the trailer uh and he plays aj who is the owner of this airbnb who has flown to detroit after being accused of sexual assault and he looks to sell the place to pay his legal fees um he is another character i was really worried about um but it's okay trust me i was very nervous um he is nowhere near a hero at all he is very villain um when he arrives at the house to find traces of another human's presence he isn't scared or worried he's angry it's very specific right um he doesn't have those cautions of like what if they're still in here it's like how dare you be in my house yeah (laughs) which was like are you kidding me your house you didn't even know like you forgot about this house this isn't your house and i'll talk about why that's even further a problem um he is continually the worst, but his behavior towards the discovery of the secret rooms is what sets him apart from Tess. Instead of acknowledging the red flags and creepiness of the basement and secret tunnels, he, like Keith, brushes it off. Neither of them conditioned to be wary of their surroundings or to be on guard. Yeah. Um, he's, like, exponentially worse, <laughs> but yeah. he's also, like, not gaslighting her because he hasn't seen her. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're given quite a bit of comedy to relieve the stress. Um, my favorite scene being the tape measure uh-huh. uh, situation. Very good. Where he's like, more watch film, land for me to <laughs> manipulate. <laughs> my favorite is when he sees, like, the cages. He's like, what is that? And then, shh. Yeah, this <laughs> totally so good. So and it's like comparing that to like when Tess was down there and the true horror that she was like that you could see on her face like all of like she's like this is the wrong decision I should not be down here this is so bad versus this guy was like how much money can I rip yeah, people like, off of literally at no point where it's he like that cage could be for me because he has never felt that that was a possibility yeah he he until now has never been held accountable for his actions uh-huh. um so aj eventually runs into the villain not my villain of the story uh known as the mother and the film spirals back into horror and it's i there's some just desserts in there <laughs> some yeah. you know oh you don't like it when your body is being used for something that you didn't want it to be used for yeah oh, someone using like a little bit of that you get a little yeah. of that and it's nice um <laughs> as horror antics ensue the film does another pivot and takes us back in time to reagan era suburbia detroit because why not <laughs> in the film so good um and here we learn of the real monster of this film frank a serial uh what is a word we could say here (laughs) serial assaulter and killer who's been abducting women hiding them in his basement impregnating them and then impregnating those babies when they're old a little older um which eventually leads to what we know as the mother yeah she's an inbred woman who comes from a monster um so again not the villain another victim yeah. uh <laughs> cannot cannot be blamed uh we are introduced to frank as he leaves the home of the airbnb only now the neighborhood is bustling and it was his house um fresh cut green lawns the sounds of children laughing and the radio informing us of reagan's plans to fix the economy follow us yeah. on our drive with frank <laughs> yep so you're like oh okay okay um this glimpse into the past further contributes to the atmospheric horror and shows us a different character affected by the horrors of the film 
Detroit. Yeah. Which is the real victim. Um, the film takes place in Brightmore, a real neighborhood in Detroit, that much like its film counterpart, is falling apart. It's haunted by its past and has fallen victim to the city's housing crisis. And just as the daylight revealed the misshapen husk of the neighborhood, so too does the film highlight a very real problem. And in a different Collider article, thank you, Collider, for all your really good pieces, titled Why Barbarians Brightmore is the Perfect Symbol for Detroit's Housing Crisis by Andrew, Andrew Mengel, the writer explains the connections. In fact, a new University of Michigan study estimates that 37,630 households in Detroit are living in spaces neglected and wrought with dangerous maintenance issues. 13% of its households are living with exposed wires, broken furnaces, or lack of running water. Um, so he <laughs> turns right into a story that tells us exactly what's going on. Um, what was once a robust and flourishing neighborhood, much like the one Frank stalks his way through, is now a vacant, barren landscape of boarded up homes and pink demolition slips. The article explains that Brightmore was a working class neighborhood of immigrants and Southerners that did fairly well during the then booming autom automotive industry of the 1920s. Um, so it started off pretty good <laughs> and it was pri primarily people of color um, or uh, people coming up just to find a better way of life. And so thanks to Dodge, Chrysler, and Ford, the city had had the fourth biggest economy by 1920. Um, and Mengel explains, according to data-driven Detroit, there are approximately 70,000 vacant households in Detroit with an overall 20.7% vacancy rate. And it's not just Brightmore. A Google search of Detroit's most abandoned neighborhoods leads to others like Grixdale Farms, Westwood Park, and about a dozen others all of which know over 25% vacancy. Um, that's a big chunk wow. of an entire population that all these houses just desolate. Mm -hmm. um, in the film, Frank reluctantly catches up with a neighbor who explains he, like much of the neighborhood, are packing their bags. The neighbor loosely explains the departure as the neighborhood is going to hell without specifying the need to leave. However, during this time, the 1980s, Detroit was experiencing a phenomenon known as the white flight spurred by racial tensions, which is what Kat's going to talk about. Yep. Um, essentially, this resulted in the city's white families leaving for the suburbs of Michigan, leaving the city desolate and abandoned in a prime environment for ne'er-do-wells like Frank to prey on his victims. Yeah. Um, just leaving it to be. So... Kat will talk more about how Detroit is haunted specifically, but what also contributed to the desolation of neighborhoods like Brightmoor was the late 2000s global recession. This led to a decrease in car sales, which for a city reliant on car creation was hit hard by. And Mengel goes on to explain how the consequences rocked Detroit and the city's commerce titans like Ford, General Motors, and Pontiac laid off thousands of workers and led to a 25% population decrease. With auto factory layoffs, workers migrated out of the city, deserting their homes and deserting Detroit, leaving the city a gray field. The city's once famous structures like the Grand Ballroom, Vanity Ballroom, packed, uh, Packard Automotive Plant, and the Lee Plaza Hotel still say vac stand vacant as of the writing of the article. Further, the, other fil uh, the film's other villain, AJ, represents another issue that has contributed to the haunting of Detroit, short-term housing such as Airbnb and Verbo. Um, 
people are buying property for low rates and renting them to temporary visitors, which the effect of short-term housing, the housing shortage, and recent inflation numbers have ballooned housing prices in America and have peaked mortgages rates, mortgage rates to the highest they've been in 12 years, says Mengel. Apparently breaking all kinds of city ordinances, AJ further harms the community, saying... AJ's disregard for city ordinances and failure to maintain his property represents the disarray the short-term rentals have imbued on the housing market. For instance, in Detroit, an Airbnb property must be the host's primary residence, mm-hmm. and the property must be inspected and reapproved by the City of Detroit Buildings, Safety Engineering, and Environmental Department, which we know is not the case for AJ because he, he was in LA. Yeah, he's also like <laughs> never really been there ever. He's never been there. And it was not expe- inspected and pre-approved because they would have saw the infinity basements of murder. <laughs> yeah. And torture. Like clearly. Yeah, somebody would have found that. <laughs> so this contributing to the harm because <laughs> now you're just inviting nobody's here, you know, like. Yeah. Because your people are not going to build or respect this community. Uh-huh. Here for a minute. Um, another piece of the housing crisis represented in the film is actually the existence and portrayal of the unhoused population of Brightmoor. Andre is a character who is unhoused and first serves as a warning for the neighborhood. Still wearing our typical horror movie glasses, we are terrified when Andre appears and he chases Tess into the house when she returns from her interview. Uh-huh. It is broad daylight, and this unhoused man is just yelling at Tess to leave, and <laughs> she is, like, super terrified, running in, closes the door, locks the door. It's like, oh, good. I was also worried about this. Um, yeah. <laughs> she is still on edge from the cautions of the normal horrors of an unknown town, and this experience shakes her further. So she calls the police, only to be dismissed, and they uh, tell her they simply don't have any cars that can help her. Yeah. Well. The unhelpful police appear later in the film only to further upset you and highlight why we need to abolish them in the first place. Yep, and my section has a lot about that, so... They are such a problem, Um, which is why I was like, that's like a whole other tangent that I could go on. Like, the fact that they, like, totally dismiss her because they think that she is just another unhoused person, Uh like, not deserving of their protection, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) There's so much to say in this film that I'm just like... I have to focus on the Airbnb. <laughs> so yeah. um, I was really worried about Andre's appearance in this, um, just as I was worried about AJ's portrayal at first. Uh, I was fearful that the film would fall into some harmful stereotypes and rhetoric, but Andre is a hero, and he is one of the few folks left living in this hus- husk of a town, and he knows of the horrors happening below. His yelling at Tess wasn't in a fit of mental duress, but rather a true warning of the house's evils. He yeah. later helps to rescue her and scolds her for caring about the others. <laughs> Essentially, like, you need to get out. Like, you need to protect yeah. you. They're dead. <laughs> That's it for you. Um, and his existence as a hero, as the lone resident of a crumbling neighborhood, showcases the more direct and realistic harm the housing crisis has on the population, which I really appreciated. Uh, one of the many things <laughs> I appreciate about this film. So... Like I said, there's much to unpack in this unique and absurd film. For me, one of the pieces that stuck out the most was the neighborhood. Having seen and experienced a neighborhood hauntingly similar to this one, I felt just as spooked by the daytime desolation as I did the abrupt horror in the basement. Frank, Mother, and all the horrifying events that occurred underground were a direct result of Detroit's housing crisis. The abandonment of this city, ripe with history, 
like we could talk about jazz and Motown <laughs> forever about Detroit, right? Has been gutted, allowing for monsters to thrive below. And as the ar article continues on, through Google Maps Street View or a drive in the north side, the real horror in Barbarian isn't exclusively found in the basement. And the closing thoughts of an article on Den of Geek titled Barbarian, Suburbia is Still the Scariest Place in America by Joe George helpfully sums up why there aren't really any heroes in this story. While AJ's property mongering brings him to his much deserved ends, our hero, our heroes Keith and Tess aren't completely innocent either. After all, Keith has come to Detroit to purchase cheap houses he and his collective will use for re artist residences. Whatever the virtue of his motives may be, he's still a white man taking advantage of suburban blight to amass houses for his collective, which could be used to help unhoused people and create local communities. Tess may not be white or a man, but she's hoping to help a director who uses their, these spaces in her documentaries, even as she condescends them. Like, <laughs> we literally see that. Um, while less openly ex exploitative, Keith and Tess take advantage of the benefits offered when AJ rents out the house and ignore or outright fear unhoused people living in the area. And for me, the true victim of Barbarian is Brightmore itself. And in the end, no one is here to save it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> and it's like, it's one of those things because it's like in my section, I'm going to be like, wow, it's like so horrible though. Um, and I'm talking yeah. about like the past past, like not past passes and I'm talking about like far, far away, but like, I'm not talking about the eighties even I'm going further back than that. Um, Cause that's like all kind of what sets up the precedent for what you see in the film, even like it explains thoroughly. I mean, obviously you expect the police officers to blatantly ignore her and be awful but like after i think like there is obvious reason why they don't take her serious in addition to just thinking she's an unhoused person it is mm -hmm. clearly blatant racism as well yeah uh, and Absolutely. like it's the city of detroit a uh, much like other cities in america has like whew, heavy heavy history specifically with that police in general uh, mm -hmm. yeah I mean just the audacity to to see a person and think they're below deserving your help as mm -hmm. someone who's like that's supposed to be your job <laughs> which is again the root of the problem <laughs> uh or one of the roots of the problems with the police force so yeah like there literally should be not a single person that is undeserving of help even if she yeah. were unhoused and were like intoxicated under the influence suffering mental duress any of those are not reasons to not deserve to be protected yeah period <laughs> like, that's it yeah so um all right well yeah. i'm gonna say a million words so i'm ready i'm gonna get get into it uh <laughs> Uh, so when talking about haunted towns, it's hard to pinpoint just one as a concept of a haunted location is totally subjective to a specific experience, uh, as well as a collective experience. Most of America is haunted by its history. And with that logic, all towns are haunted here. Um, there are endless horrible things that have taken place here that would create the necessary energy and impact that would give cause to haunting. However, this film specifically highlights Detroit, so for my section, I'll go into greater detail about some of the things shown in the film, as well as the many reasons Detroit is, like, deeply haunted. Um, so, Detroit, Michigan. Um, what is haunting? 
Detroit specifically. Um, hints at this are highlighted throughout the film. Gabe got into it a lot in their section of two. Um, although it's like the staging ground for the plot that's taking place, not exactly mm -hmm. like the forefront of the story, although it is still very important. It's like something that's highlighted throughout the film, but we don't get to unpack it, I guess, at the level that I'm going to now. Mm -hmm. um, so as Gabe mentioned, in one of the flashbacks of the film, we hear a neighbor approach the villain villain and say they are leaving because the neighbor is going to hell. And this is a nod to the extensive segregation and white flight uh, that has existed in Detroit, uh, specifically in response to fears around desegregation as well as uh, just racism. Um, there is also a deeply upsetting history surrounding uh, racially motivated police brutality. Uh, and that'll be the bulk of what I cover in this. So that is also just like a content warning for folks if they do not want to hear about that right now, they're not in the headspace for that. Uh, just so you know, that's what we'll be covering today. All of this information is meant to provide further context for the landscape we witness in the film, as well as explain why we chose to highlight this film in our Haunted Town series. Um, while Detroit may not be haunted by a monster in the theatrical sense, it is very haunted by its history and the impact of that history haunts and hurts people to this day. Um, as I said, a content warning uh, for police brutality, murder, racism, and segregation. Um, if you, I'm going to highlight a source specifically that if you do not want to hear me talk about this or see my face talk about this and you want to just learn about it still, um, I'm linking a very helpful resource, which I'm going to explain, um, which is the Detroit Under Fire Police Violence, Crime, Politics, and Struggle for Radical racial justice in the civil rights era and more. It's specifically um, a multimedia digital exhibit that documents patterns and incidents of police brutality and misconduct, as well as the fatal shootings and other killings by law enforcement in the city of Detroit during the era of the modern civil rights movement from 1957 to 1973. The exhibit further chronicles the anti-police brutality struggle waged by civil rights and the black power groups and many ordinary people who demanded racial and social justice and sought accountability for systemic police violence. The main goal of Detroit Under Fire is to uncover the deliberately hidden history of police violence, building upon the work of activists at the time that these events happened and to make this history available to impacted communities, students and broader public audiences the Detroit Under Fire research team has identified 75% of the officially acknowledged total of fatal shootings by police officers and excavated more than 400 other brutality and misconduct complaints by black citizens from the depths of the archives. These stories are told many for the first time publicly in more than 100 exhibit pages that reproduce around 1500 archival documents and allow audiences to examine these sources for themselves and dig deeper into history. So this source filled the bulk of my section. There was just so much information that I didn't even get to read all of it. It was just very interesting um, and upsetting. And But it's definitely one of those things I highly recommend if this is some, a topic that you want to learn more about um, and you want to know about things that have been kind of like swept under the rug, specifically with intention, uh, you can read about them. Um, it was published in March 2021, and it was a pilot project for the Policing and Social Justice History Lab, uh, an, an affiliate of the Carceral State Project at the University of Michigan. 
Um, so with that being said, uh, there is no way I can cover the entirety of this in the time allotted. So I recommend reading through the historical documentation at your leisure if you wish to. Um, Detroit specifically has a long and complex history with racism and a turning point in that history that ended up unfortunately being more performative than anything else was the political career of Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh. Um, Jerome Cavanaugh ran as an antithesis of the Republican incumbent, Louis Miriani. He was a young liberal Democrat, a supporter of civil rights reforms, and he advocated for a better police and community relations. African-Americans and white liberal voters rallied around his campaign. For many commentators, Kavanaugh seemed to be Detroit's version of President John F. Kennedy, a youthful Catholic politician, a father of six, an energetic reformer. Kavanaugh ran on the platform of change, promising more jobs and a return of Detroit of to be a great city it had once been. Um, the reason I like, well, they kind of start with this in the article, but it also just seems like a very important turning point when uh, you get this like hope that mm -hmm. things might start to turn around because the time that this is positioned in is like 1963. Uh, so just to give you a context of the climate then, uh, his optimism ultimately ended up taking precedence over reality. He did a lot of talking but ultimately landed more moderately than needed when it came to civil rights legislation, especially proving that his own biases made him incapable of taking the necessary steps towards non-performative action. Kavanaugh, once in office, appointed George Edwards to be the new commissioner of the Detroit Police Department with the goal of achieving achieving like light reform, like diet reform. <laughs> um, the reform was packaged as equal enforcement of the law, uh, but really it was just a more firm reminder that the police should be followed. Like their whole thing was like, there was a code of conduct made in like the fifties. And they're like, this is just a nice reminder that you should have been following that the entire time. Mm -hmm. That's, that was their reform. They were like, Hey, hey remember you have a handbook, read it and do what it says. That was all they did. They didn't actually reform anything. Mm. They just said that they were mad that they weren't listening to their handbook. That's mm. all that happened. Um, neither Kavanaugh nor Edwards supported the necessary reform to punish and investigate officers on claims of police brutality, however. And the results of their entire campaign and mass reform was uh, I don't see color and just stop being racist as a platform um, that did very little to actually dismantle any forms of systemic oppression mm -hmm. um, and the systemic issues in Detroit included but were not limited to the job and housing discrimination redlining racial and economic segregation and extensive police brutality a deep wound that cannot be healed with euphemistic words and a vague list of empty promises uh, a year into his term reality came crashing in and the wound was now infected so he kind of positioned himself as this like optimistic, wonderful person mm -hmm. and not paying attention to reality. And then reality was like, hey, but actually mm -hmm. you're full of crap. Um, so apparently uh, Martin Luther King Jr. marched through Detroit, Michigan in 1963. This was the same year he was elected uh, that Kavanaugh was elected on the walk for freedom. Uh, he gave a speech very similar to the I have a dream speech and everything went well. Uh, the Detroit police were claimed to show restraint and act nonviolently towards protesters, which is the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were complimented extensively for this. And that was where, like, the chaos starts to ensue. Um, they were endlessly complimented just for not 
being violent towards protesters. Uh, the problematic of that is like obvious in many ways, but especially with the traumatic history of police brutality that had been extensively documented and lived for many Black Americans living in Detroit from like nine for the entire time that they were living there, but specifically the period of 1950 to 1963, right before Kavanaugh was elected. Mm-hmm. Um, while King and other civil rights pro rights leaders praised the Detroit Police Department for its professionalism during the Walk of Freedom and the city's white leadership and media lavishly praised themselves. On June 24th, the day after the march, Police Commissioner Edwards stated, I have been receiving congratulations on the work of the police department from all walks of life in the city of Detroit. Edwards also told his officers it was a tremendous tribute to the work of the police department of this community and every single officer who was on duty that day. I suggest to you that the discipline, the skill, the strength with which all details handled the problems of the parade and meeting of constitu- meeting constituted a higher watermark of professionalism. The Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News also wrote multiple articles about this, how superbly the police operated to maintain public safety, to prevent violence, and to refrain from using force against the demonstrators. With that being said, the march was orderly and nonviolent, so it was not clear why police restraint from deploying violence is particularly notable, except as a contrast to the open and unapologetic racism of the Birmingham police. It was very much like the North in how they're quietly racist uh, Mm -hmm. and lauding that over the blatant racism of the South. They were just Mm -hmm. like, look at you not be violent towards people. We're the good ones. Yeah, it was very that. And they were just like, really just... There were just so many articles outlining, like, look at them, so good. Love yeah. that they didn't vi- like conduct violence against innocent people. Yeah. Great job, police. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so following this loud display of the Detroit government parading, look how not racist we are, many Black Detroit re- residents continued to feel frustrated with the false presentation of the police and the Detroit government that was very different from their lived experience. Um, as well as a very as well as very different from the documented evidence to the contrary. Uh, the Detroit police at the time already had a long history of conducting illegal arrests on black residents, and the city itself was and currently is deeply segregated. According to the Detroit chapter of the NAACP and the Detroit branch of the ACLU, uh, the Detroit Police Department consistently and disproportionately subjected African-Americans to illegal investigative arrests where officers arrested allegedly suspicious people and detained them during crime investigations. In the ni- in 1958 report, Arrests Without Warrant by Harold Norris of the Detroit branch of the ACLU documented this unjust and extensive system of investigative arrests. The report published by the NAACP magazine, The Crisis, revealed that more than one-third of all non-traffic arrests made by the DPD were warrantless arrests for investigation only. The State Bar of Michigan had condemned the DPD practice of making investigative arrests without probable cause as far back as 1948. As As of 1956, 26,696 out of 67,301 total non-traffic arrests were warrantless, Mm -hmm. and most did not meet the legal standard of probable cause. The ratio had been similar for the previous decade. Norris concluded thousands of citizens spend thousands of days in jail illegally and with little opportunity for release. 
Other thousands of citizens are forced by the same practice to pay out thousands of dollars in bond money mm-hmm. as a kind of ransom to regain the freedom of which they had been wrongfully deprived. Um, this is from Harold Norris in the crisis. The DPD's illegal policy to investigate of investigative arrests primarily targeted African-Americans. Norris categorized their experiences as the equivalent of living in a police state, not a democracy, mm-hmm. where the criminal justice system deprived them of the constitu- constitutional right to fundamental immunity or arbitrary arrest. He also criticized the local courts for not enforcing the writ of habeas corpus and allowing DPD officers to detain arrested people indefinitely. Mm-mm. Finally, the ACLU report stated that DPD officers often tortured and abused these wrongfully held prisoners in order to coerce confessions and solve crimes. Disgusting. Um, so A-cap. this is literally, okay. This man was elected in 1963. Mm-hmm. This report was about 1958. Literally a handful of years have taken place Mm -hmm. since that article was published. There was no even insinuation that things had gotten better since then. So the fact that they had just like praised this obviously corrupt police department to the level that they did reasonably made people mad. Um, so uh these events are what necessitated the change in police commissioners and mayors in the first place but ultimately little changed this became even more obvious with the blatant soon after the blatant uh racism that took place soon after the march um edwards took a three-week vacay to europe in celebration of the good press of course and while gone something very awful happened Mm -hmm. uh very soon after the events of the walk for freedom and very close to the route of the walk, like literally it is, they show like the line in the, the article. Um, and it's like literally the line of where he, Martin Luther King walked and then right next to it, like literally right here mm-hmm. where, uh, this event took place. So, uh, essentially a Detroit officer murdered an unarmed black woman named Cynthia Scott and while that is already horrific and awful, they go to the extreme lengths to cover up the murder. Um, the mayor and the police attempted to cover up the murder in order to maintain their image. They didn't want to lose the momentum that they gained in their good press. Mm-hmm. Uh, a week following the murder, the country po- county prosecutor ruled the shooting a justifiable homicide. And in response, 2,500 Amer- African-Americans joined and demonstrated at the DPD's downtown headquarters to protest police violence. The campaign for justice for Cynthia Scott was led by the Detroit Council for Human Rights, a newer militant counterpart to the NAACP by churches with the Black Nationalist Orientation, especially Reverend Albert Cleveland Shrine and the Black Madonna, by radical young Black activists and recently formed groups called Goal and UHRU. U-H-U-R-U, and by regular working class Black people, especially women. Um, Some of the documentation proving that they covered this murder up did not get released until 2020. Um, Specifically, the statements from the officers that clearly were altered and fabricated. So if you want to know more about that specific case, they go over it extensively. Um, There's an entire section of the website outlining the corruption of that specific incident. Unsurprisingly, the media supported the officer's framing of the event and defamed Cynthia Scott in the press as well, skewing the public opinion of the case. Um, So I provide links to that if you wish to 
read more about what that is. And also just like, so you know, it actually happened uh, because mm-hmm. they went to extensive lengths to cover it up and make it seem that like it wasn't real and like to devalue her life. Similarly to how we saw in the film that the police mm-hmm. very much did not care about the people that mm-hmm. they were tasked with serving. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, just a year after and another instance of police brutality, a young woman named Barbara Jackson was brutally attacked by Detroit police. Luckily, she survived the encounter and sued the Detroit Police Department for discrimination by race, therefore violating her civil and constitutional rights and won, which was great. Uh, But unfortunately, even though the verdict was a win, uh, in 1965, the Jackson verdict, along with two others involving black citizens from Detroit, announced simultaneously represented the first completed police brutality investigation by a new agency. However, this did not result in tangible change, and the officers only received reprimands and were transferred to a different precinct. Um, this failure to punish violent and criminal police officers had tragic consequences, not least because patrolman Raymond Peterson went on to compile a long track record of brutality against other black citizens and ultimately participated in the killings of nine African-American males, Mm. including one that led to the prosecution for murder during the DPD's undercover stress operation from 1971 to 1973. Um, So essentially... just got transferred instead of yes yeah so he got no consequences and eventually did get prosecuted for murder mm-hmm. murdered but those murders could have been presented they prevented. could have been prevented if he just had consequences in the first place and was held yeah. accountable for his action 100 um so and also they mentioned the stress operation which they get into pretty extensively it was really just like undercover police violence uh that was created to prevent crime by attacking people that they suspected of crime which was just total racism mm-hmm. um, and they did disarm and decontinue stress but it took many 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 years to get that mm. um they did a lot of damage but uh, i don't think i'm going to get too into stress specifically so that's why i wanted to highlight in case you did want to learn about it more um nationally the war on poverty and crime further funded and militarized the police to terrorize communities by tasking them with monitoring things they should have never been in charge of um that being said the target of the war on crime was not merely criminal behavior but rather the sociological and economic factors that the national government believed led to criminality to that end police and other law enforcement officials were responsible for monitoring poverty racial antagonism, family breakdown, and restlessness of young people, according to President Johnson's Commission of Law Enforcement and the Administration of Justice. By tasking law enforcement officers to solve community-based issues, Johnson established a national war on crime as a guerrilla warfare-style attack in poor urban Black neighborhoods. Flooding the streets with police, often in plain clothes, was the presumptive solution to the American's crime crisis. The policy led to racial criminalization of Black youth on the street, often for minor offenses or for nothing at all, and was not effective in combating actual criminal behavior. In Detroit, despite a rampant influx of officers in the Black community, violent and nonviolent crime rates remained relatively unchanged during the mid-1960s. Um, the most Gotham and Batman-like method that was so close to the point but chose the entirely wrong solution. Mm-hmm. They recognized that poverty has an impact on people, and instead of funding public programs to uplift those communities he was like let's just punch them Mm -hmm. let's just murder them and punch them and that'll fix it like (laughs) 
just so it's like they they were so close to the point and then just were like right off it's yeah. just so dumb it really just if they just had any sense they could have just not murdered all these people so uh but they did not do that because racism and if you've been watching the news at all they still aren't um as expected when you terrorize communities there will be uprisings against that terror there will be like reactions to the unjust things happening so the detroit uprising of 1967 was a violent and divisive time for the city and part of a wave of urban unrest that spread across the nation in the mid to late 1960s incidents of police brutality and harassment of african americans were the immediate triggers for almost every episode of civil unrest during this era in detroit the specific trigger was a police raid of the blind pig an after hours bar in the early morning of july 23rd 1967 Officers in the Detroit Police Department arrested 85 African-Americans, and this time people fought back. The civil disorder, alternatively labeled a riot, a rebellion, and an uprising, lasted for nine days and resulted in at least 43 deaths. The official count is 33 African-Americans and 10 white people. Uh, Around 72,000 arrests and significant property damage was a result. The governor of Michigan declared a state of emergency and mobilized the National Guard, and the president of the United States eventually sent in the U.S. Army paratroopers to occupy the city of Detroit. So... Uh, 7,200. 7,200, yeah. Sorry, I am bad at numbers. No, it's totally cool. I just want to make sure... Yeah, yeah 7,200. So sorry. I always mess up what the zeros mean. Um, it's okay. Luckily, it was on the screen. So mm-hmm. um, essentially, uh, the response to, again, they're so close. Like, they were just like, let's just make more police brutality. That'll fix mm-hmm. it. Uh, and they didn't, obviously. They're mad about police brutality. So let's we do more do of more it. Of it. Uh, and clearly, if you witnessed 2020, They've learned nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, when asked why they were upset about what was happening, why the riot even took place, uh, the causes were pretty, you would think, obvious. Riot causes identified by Black residents of Detroit in Urban League survey stated that while systematic police brutality and mistreatment of Detroit's African-American residents served as a catalyst, the 1967 uprise also was the culmination of many underlying forces, including deep patterns of racial segregation and discrimination in housing, education, and employment. The typical rioter rioter was an unemployed African-American male between 15 and 24 years old, and in the aftermath, the investigation seeking to pinpoint the cause of the civil unrest blamed white racism, housing segregation, black male unemployment, and especially widespread African-American resentment against police brutality. The story of African-Americans in Detroit revealed a similar indictment, 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 word. Mm -hmm. A survey of African-Americans in Detroit revealed a similar indictment. Police brutality was the number one cause of the civil disturbance, followed closely by crowded and substandard housing, unemployment, and poverty. So they specifically list overcrowded living conditions, poor housing, lack of jobs, poverty, and at the top of the list, police brutality. Um, The uprising of July 1967 shattered the previous false reputation that Detroit had as modeled as a city for racial progress. All that, you know, in 1963, this guy's been mayor for all this time. Um, 
all that false euphemistic press that was like, look mm-hmm. how great we are, was finally nationally shattered. Uh, mm-hmm. Everyone kind of actually knew what was going on now. Uh, it showed the whole world the very present tension that was caused by decades of rac- racial discrimination and police violence. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, the Detroit Police Department learned nothing. They thought they were doing a great job. Uh, mm-hmm. They denied police brutality ever existed, only as a hoax to campaign against law enforcement, if that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, so essentially, the thoughts from 1963 to present, or 1967 to present, have been pretty consistent. Mayor Kavanaugh doubled down in his performative progressiveness, claiming police brutality was a thing of the past, and signed a repressive and racially targeted stop-and-frisk law demanded by Detroit's white population on an indication of full alignment of white liberalism with police repression in the aftermath of the nationwide wave of urban uprisings. In addition, he enacted a hotline where citizens could call the police on things they thought might be crimes, which largely empowered white populations to militarize the police against Black Detroit residents. Uh, The Black birth of the Karens. Yeah. Uh, The Black community even lists rumors initiated by white residents as the cause for police brutality in the surveys that were mentioned above. Uh, So the decision was especially tone deaf. Uh, The Rumor Control Center received more than 10,000 calls in the first two months of operation in the spring of 1968, and the volume skyrocketed after fears of another riot uprising intensified following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. In a typical pattern, civil rights protests such as the Black student school walkouts would prompt a flood of calls from fearful white residents and then the ensuing police crackdowns, which generally included serious brutality, would elicit alarmed calls from Black residents who heard rumors that the police were shooting African-American youth. Mm. When you thought it could not get worse, it continues to do so. Uh, So as time continued, the expansion of militarized, racially targeted law enforcement in Detroit, specifically during the early 1970s, took shape in the context of the punitive federal laws on crime and drugs during the Nixon administration. All of these things furthered the divide and fear from white residents, empowering them to weaponize that fear. Uh, This fear is what led to the Detroit... To Detroit, like, one, I'm I'm not even talking about Reagan and all the damage that he did, but, like, this Mm -hmm. led to it remaining one of the most segregated cities in the United States to this day. Uh, In another article titled Residential Segregation in Detroit by Allison Muano, Zoe Wallen, and Kate Satejikate, uh, they highlight how all these things coincided with segregation, financial inequity, and racism. Today, Detroit is the second most segregated city in the United States. More than half, 52.4% of Black residents of the greater Detroit area reside in primarily Black neighborhoods, well above the national average of 16.8%. And tensions persist over issues of segregation. To this point, primarily white suburban areas vetoed plans for a regional transit system in the metropolitan Detroit area, preventing increased integration. And white enrollment in schools with an influx of black students has dropped tremendously. Funding inequities between historically white and black communities also contribute to the lack of resources available to black and low-income communities and thereby continue the legacy of segregation in those areas. Um, Obviously, of course, there is more information on the time between 1970s and today. Um, as Gabe kind of touched on, 
what's happening now in terms of the housing issues, as well as mm-hmm. like the reality of like what Reagan did to this country and the black community uh, that I didn't even get into. There's just so much history there. But uh, essentially the reason I focused on the time that I did uh, was to really kind of show you how we got here. Cause I feel like, I don't know, in being that I was born in the nineties, I like felt like I knew more about the Reagan era in America, mm-hmm. but I didn't know specifically about like the sixties other than like the stuff that they teach you in school about like civil rights. Um, yeah. I did not know anything specifically about Detroit and a lot of it ended up like aligning to make sense of why the world is how it is right now. Um, mm-hmm. and there were like clear indicators of like what motivated like white fear to empower like militarized police against black communities uh mm-hmm. that stood out a lot um so at the end of the day this information above will hopefully provide some additional context to why detroit specifically is very haunted and why and what paved the way for the realities it faces today as well as the landscape we're given in the film of decimated neighborhoods with many abandoned homes and crumbling infrastructure uh and you can read about those issues in some links that i link in our blog specifically detroit overtaxed homeowners 600 million years later advocates still seeking reparations um detroit home repair crisis is even bigger than experts thought Detroit, the evolution of the housing crisis. A lot has been happening specifically with housing in Detroit for a while now, as Gabe said, motivated in some part because of the auto industry and its destruction uh, or like closing of factories, layoffs, et cetera, as well as just like the very long seated history of like segregation and racism that has been prevalent there for a very long time. Um, So it's just context. It's just the unfortunate context. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about redlining and gentrification and how that impacts communities. And so that's like the direct reaction to that. Like that's the link from those events and how it frames this very volatile and harmful like force on a community. And now like it's like their segregation is very intentional. It is to keep those people over there keep us over here all the funding comes over here all the harm goes over there like very specific very yeah. intentional and that's how you end up with a town like brightmore and you end up with the horror stories like barbarian not exactly obviously but like yeah the old the the, the horrors that were like people might miss mm-hmm. their first time watching through yeah 100 percent. and just like also just <laughs> It's honestly just like insane how well documented all this is in addition, like that, like there's just such a clear line of Mm -hmm. how and like how intentionality around hiding that information has been like in making sure that people don't know that information uh, so that they're like, what do you mean? How did we get here? It's been Mm -hmm. so long where it's like in everything that I read, there was just such a clear line to like yeah all the social factors of how like fear specifically influenced just so many of the wrong decisions and how all those decisions stacked and all of them involved violence and like it's just so like obvious when you look at it all I mm-hmm. guess yeah and I wonder like if 
there's a site like this about Philly too, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of history with our mayors and police force. I mean, some people just learning about like the move bombing, mm-hmm. like they had like a special about it that my mom learned about and called me because she was like, what? Like no one talks about those things. And that was even more recent. So you're thinking yeah. like, I wonder if there is, I bet that there Somewhere. is, yeah. I mean, because it's like lots of things are viewed on a national spectrum instead of like uh, state or city based. Like, mm-hmm. you get really siloed into a specific area. I feel like you really can see the exact ways it does impact people. Um, because on a national level, it's like it's all happening, yes, but like you're not getting the actual like faces as much. You know, you're not getting mm-hmm. the actual like po- specific policies that influence neighborhoods um and everything else like you get everything on a very national level like what federally was happening um Mm -hmm. what was being like pushed to do from overhead and like this is like a very interesting like opposite view where you're looking so much at what like this specific city is doing um, Mm -hmm. and how that is influenced by the stuff happening overhead but Mm -hmm. how they're very much creating this situation and making it worse actively through every decision that they make it was very interesting devastating yeah uh, yeah but very interesting yeah so. and I feel like you know we've covered like we're gonna have another episode on haunted towns next week and it'll be a little different um but yeah more about factory towns and yeah which is like kind of I mean kind of what Detroit was too like it was the automotive industry and it was booming when it was booming and then nobody wanted cars and now there's lots of towns in pennsylvania too that uh have a similar Mm -hmm. story in terms of the infrastructure and like mining and other kinds of the transition of factory towns and how Mm -hmm. we are now yeah i feel like that's a really big northeast thing like Mm -hmm. i know like in massachusetts like my family has a lot of history with factories and how once you're at like once those aren't used anymore you know we could like entire populations were just totally shouldn't be an amazon town yeah (laughs) yeah Um, if 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 this will teach you a little bit of that as well uh Mm -hmm. or just watch sorry to bother you (laughs) yes yeah and like um i think even our episode about like the sunken homes the sunken haunted Mm -hmm. homes was also haunted towns like i think this specifically this series has really showed like haunting in a different way that I think people aren't always actively thinking about you know like our grief episode but I think specifically for me it's been very eye-opening to think of the many ways that like entire communities and places are haunted by the decisions and the oppressive forces of the people who inhabit those spaces yeah it's pretty spooky it's definitely very scary 100 it's like scary in the reality way Mm -hmm. Uh, that is not like this like theatrical monster uh or like haunted house in the terms of like there's ghosts in there uh it's very real and stressful yeah and I think like I think this episode like the film was really surprising to me like when because when I was watching it and it, it like dawned on me like seeing Detroit and seeing it that way I was like 
this is a haunted town. Like, the, and then I was like, it is a haunted town, and the, I know there's so much history there, and there's so yeah. much pain there I didn't too. Talk about the like the white flight specifically, and like that impact as well. Like, there's so much, so much. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Uh, yeah, and it's just one place, one yeah. specific city in this entire country that's filled with a million other stories that are likely at least like parallel to what happened there so mm-hmm. yeah it's like it's an epidemic in in the entire country for sure if history makes you happy you're not doing it right <laughs> yeah you're not reading the right history yeah, you're not actually you're some history. <laughs> crt in here you know oh, yeah. like <laughs> um yeah well yeah well <laughs> I hope that was educational for you if you have any thoughts like if you live in Detroit or if you know people who live in Detroit if you visited Detroit and you have some history or things that you want to share with us please let us know at thegoalsnextdoor@gmail.com. um we're still learning we still want to learn if you watch Barbarian is there something that you got out of it that we haven't covered yet because we might circle back around (laughs) and cover something else that was a part of it um if there are films about haunted towns or what you would think is considered a haunted town let us know we can check that out too yeah and also like at the end of the day if you found anything i said interesting or even if it like made you mad you're like that's not what happened that's i don't know everything we're just covering these topics so like i highly encourage you to look for stuff too you know like mm-hmm. the stuff i put links or whatever but uh if you know you have different links and you're like hey cat you actually said something incorrect send me link the the correct thing and I'll be like, heck yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely share your resources. We'll share ours. And um, yeah, we're always learning and growing. And again, this it's not our city. It's not a time period we existed in. And yeah. so we can only know what we're reading about and being told. Yeah. So use that logic yourself too and how you analyze things. Mm-hmm. Be like, look at that. I may not know everything because we don't. <laughs> yeah. It's one up. We got one hour of learning <laughs> about Detroit's housing crisis uh, and also history with racism and redlining and uh, uh, segregation and all. And that also, stuff. just like this movie. <laughs> yeah. Also, watch this movie. Yeah. Please, please, please watch this movie. Um, and don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave us a comment, a review. Love to hear from you. We have a few more haunted things, some very interesting things coming up for the series. And then, we'll, you know, we'll be saying sayonara to this year and hopping into the next one. So if you have any suggestions or things that you would like us to cover in the new year, maybe some themes, maybe a film that you were really loving these days, let us know. We want to hear from you. Yeah. We have some ideas, but we're always ready to switch it up. Honestly, I think half the time we make a plan and we're like, all right, well, that was a good plan. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, yeah, something else. Yeah. Nice. Right. Well, don't get married. Delete your kids. Yeah. Bye. Bye.